Hey, what's up everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilzak. Hope everybody's staying safe out there. This week, I'm talking with Dr. Tara Sutton, an assistant professor at Mississippi State University, about her research on gender and violence. This is episode 28 of Untenured Tracks. data so it's been done there have been more tests coming out of that model with um with quantitative data it originally was kind of based in early feminist uh criminology theorizing and qualitative research Mm -hmm. um and the perspective basically says that girls and women engage in crime because they have been traumatized and abused and the reactions to trauma and abuse kind of lead them on a pathway towards crime Mm -hmm. So one, a lot of times things like sexual abuse, physical abuse um, are looked at, but less often racial discrimination has been looked at. So I have been working on a model looking at how racial discrimination could also be a form of trauma, mm-hmm. leading to girls' crime through issues at school, reduced mental health, and increased substance use. Mm-hmm. So adding that idea of others have obviously talked about this idea of racial discrimination as a form of trauma but to incorporate it into that body of literature and tie it to school issues so like for example tying it to ideas like Monique Morris's like push out like how are black girls in particular pushed out of schools particularly when they're trying to deal with trauma and how might that be a pathway to their crime Mm -hmm. so that's something I'm really excited about that I've been working on cool so um, could you talk a little bit about how people may experience racial discrimination as a type of trauma? Because I imagine that there might be people listening to this who aren't really familiar with with that as a traumatic experience. Right. So I'm white. I'm a white uh, lesbian woman, so I can't speak, obviously, I just want to say, to a direct experience of racial discrimination mm-hmm. as a that black people would experience, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, talking academically about it, right, we know that it's a pervasive chronic experience that uh, black children start experiencing very young, right, even as young as, like, toddlerhood are already experiencing racial discrimination or recognizing that they're being discriminated against. So it's a lifelong thing where people are being constantly, you know, mistreated, treated differently, blocked from opportunities. Um, And because of the chronicity of it, the pervasiveness of it, and the negative effects of it, some people have considered it a form of trauma Mm -hmm. akin to other forms of abuse or even violence. Did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it did. Uh, So what got you interested in in the Pathways approach to, to... like thinking about violence and trauma. So one of my 
one of my areas of interest that I would consider myself an expert in is the like the intergenerational transmission of violence. So how early abuse uh, can first risk, particularly for later partner violence and sexual assault, was really mm-hmm. what I was focused on. Mm-hmm. So that starting interest combined with I started teaching gender crime and justice and kind of getting more into like women's crime generally not just related to partner violence and not just their victimization, but also their crime. Mm -hmm. And so as I learned more about that through teaching that course and combining it kind of with my other interests and areas of expertise, it just became something I kind of naturally became kind of fascinated Mm -hmm. with. Yeah, because, I mean, the time part is is really interesting, right? Because, I mean, I do, I started off at least before my job turned me into like a generalist, I guess. Um, I mean, all my stuff was life course related. And I think that the time stuff is is super interesting. Yeah, I also have a background. My master's is in child or uh, human development and family studies. So life course is also a big life course in development in a different way, but mm-hmm. is a big deal in that perspective too. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I definitely always have this eye to kind of like, I work with a longitudinal data set also, so I always kind of have this eye to how things are unfolding over time, and I think that's important mm-hmm. for many things, especially when we're talking about how childhood and adolescence, you know, influence obviously like your adulthood. Mm-hmm. So you had mentioned that uh, discrimination, racial discrimination, is something that that kids can experience as early as toddlerhood. And so, in your research, have you been able to show or like find any evidence to say that um, from that that early age then are kids experiencing different outcomes later on because of that discrimination they experienced so young so that's not necessarily directly related to my research i know that there's evidence that you know children already think they are less beautiful or attractive or pretty when they're that when they're pretty young and that we already see um differences in school outcomes some of which is structural but some of which is how people are you know treated by other people Mm -hmm. um and just you know kind of like on twitter and stuff you can see there's been threads where people will talk about how the first time they were called a racial slur you know they were five years old or they were seven years old or they were you know four years old um as far as my research i the data i generally work with follows use from adolescence into young adulthood. So as far as the work that I'm personally doing, I have found evidence that, for example, racial discrimination increases uh, partner violence among men. Um, But if they have supportive parents, that negative effect can be reduced. So supportive parenting is kind of a buffer to Mm -hmm. that. Um, I also have found that racial discrimination is a pretty strong influential predictor of crime among men and women even when accounting for other things like child abuse uh psychological difficulties or substance use Hmm. and that's from adolescence into adulthood yeah so what's the i guess what's the chain of events there so like how do we how do we go from from like the discriminatory experiences to being engaged in some type of partner violence or other type of crime. Right. So some of it is attempt. Some of it is the way that it changes the way you see the world. Right. Mm-hmm. So one thing I have found is like anger or something that I will call like hostile attribution bias, mm-hmm. which would be like a kind of like a social information processing, right? You come to not be able to trust other people in the world around you. Mm-hmm. And that can kind of create this sense of mistrust can lead to 
violence, out of feeling like you're protecting yourself, even if you're not actually in a situation where you need to protect yourself. Mm-hmm. So that could be one way. Another way is just the way that any trauma, including racial discrimination, influences, um, like I said, like attempts to cope in that I find that people were more likely to have, you know, mental health issues with depression and anxiety. Um, they were more likely to not feel like they belonged at school or be dedicated to school. Um, they also started engaging in more substance use. So these attempts to cope can open up other avenues to crime. So, right, like substance use can escalate into more extreme drug use. Um, or you might turn to, right, like other forms of crime like theft to support a substance abuse habit or just as you like kind of lose your way, right? Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I've never thought about how how that sense of alienation can affect the ways that we, or like the coping mechanisms that we see are available to us, especially for, for young people, right, who mm-hmm. kind of already may have a limited... Mm, number of coping <laughs> mechanisms or coping skills right. to use, or at least to have uh, maybe not be as aware of different coping strategies that are out there. And then adding into that, like the sense that the world has rejected you. I don't know. That's, that's really interesting. Thank you. Yeah. I think it is an interesting line of research i hope to continue like exploring all of these things as i'm moving forward it's something i've really gotten interested in yeah yeah i mean i've been like lately my stuff has been focusing a lot on on social change like i've been i've been researching mm-hmm. for a book on the history of crime in the 20th century and it started off as just like i want to talk about these big cases and try to find a way to link them all together and that really became like a history of failed federal crime policies really and and big events and how they relate to that and i think a lot of what you see is people responding to this sense of not really feeling like they belong anywhere and the government either like outright hates them um or is doing everything to say that they hate them and then everything kind of explodes and i think like i taught a revolutions class last semester too and that was super interesting and like all the social revolutions work talks about like similar stuff, you know, yeah. um, just framing it as like discrimination leading to, or like discrimination as a type of trauma that's alienating and then leading to all these other negative outcomes is really like a new angle. I think at least from like the revolution stuff that I've been so immersed in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think it's an idea that has been theorized a lot, but I, I don't see as many quantitative tests of these ideas. Like, people definitely have these thoughts. It's not, like, groundbreaking as far as the theoretical thinking, but that ability to test them and thinking about ways to test them, I think, is yeah something I have a lot of. Like, for example, when I did the paper on racial discrimination and partner violence, I thought I was going to be, like, finding, like, tons of articles on that. I wasn't going to be able to fill this gap, but there was, like, one or two empirical papers that weren't just theoretical pieces and i was honestly shocked by that so <laughs> it's <yeah>. good <laughs> it's, it's kind of like finding 20 dollars in like an old pair of pants <laughs> like oh that's <laughs> happy days um so have you yeah, exactly. <laughs> have you said anything to suggest that men and women 
respond differently to discrimination that they experience or does it have is like the effect the alienating effect seem to be pretty universal you know what i mean like does that make sense yeah i so i haven't done enough comparing men and women that i want to make like broad over like claims about that but in the paper i'm working on with like the feminist pathways specifically i did find that one thing that was different was for women, part of the effect of discrimination on substance use was because of mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And for men, that wasn't the case. So that indicates that women might in particular be coping with mental health stemming from discrimination with substances, where for men, those might actually be separate processes. Hmm. Uh, That the drinking... As a, or and using uh, marijuana, I think is in the measure I use drinking and substance use might not be a direct um, result of mental health problems, but might be more directly tied to the trauma itself. I wonder uh, why. And that might have something to do with like peers or something that I wasn't able to tap right. So like maybe men turn to deviant peers if they feel alienated, right? So like that could be something that I just wasn't able to capture. Yeah. But that's one way that may have worked. Yeah. So and... instead of being about their own mental health issues, it might be about their peers. So, yeah. Again, I didn't test that, but that's something that could be happening here. Oh, for sure, but it's still something that we can we can think out loud about, right? And yeah. like guess at because I mean, part of me says that it that kind of falls in line with just like very broad social adolescence and like juvenile delinquency type stuff, right? Where yeah. we would at least classically the argument would be that girls tend to internalize and boys don't. I mean, that's kind right. of a little bit. I think what you're seeing, but yeah, and again, maybe not. I agree. I think it's just potentially, yeah, what I'm seeing, which is like you're saying, like a pretty classic. Yeah. Um, but I think the thing that is interesting there is that girls internalization can also lead to crime. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so like that. Yeah. Are they, so are, are, are they doing like the same types of things? Like, I mean, is it, did you measure like multiple types of crime and, like, you know yeah, I mean? it's a pretty broad crime measure. I didn't break it for this. I didn't break it down by type. Men were definitely committing more crime, almost twice as much yeah. as women, um, sure. which is not surprising. But I didn't look at the types of crime. So the measure I used includes, like, vandalism, and it does include, like, some violent crime, some theft, some, minor, uh-huh. some more minor thefts, like carjacking. So, like, a pretty yeah. broad – it's a pretty broad range. But I don't know for a specific crime if one was higher than another. But then we're committing more crime. Yeah, well, and yeah. Fight, yeah. Which isn't surprising. No. Yeah. Um, I, I think the vandalism one would be really interesting to break out, like, by itself. Just because that, I mean, if you're thinking about this as, like, an alienation measure, or, or uh, um, what am I trying to say? Like, a way to, to, to try to capture alienation. And if we're thinking about this as, like, the discrimination tells them that they don't fit into the world then like that vandalism could be a way of expressing that alienation you know what i mean yeah i see what you're saying like if it, it's like a very like visual way to like express your alienation to society yeah at large right yeah i can see that being interesting i'll have to look at that yeah, because I mean, I, I just thought of it because the word, like, the word vandalism comes from the French Revolution. <laughs> and oh, I didn't know. yeah, it was, 
Um, so during the revolution, there was a period where they were, I think it's because they were, they were taking down like any kind of Catholic, um, like iconography throughout the country. Mm -hmm. Um, and people, I mean, like the Catholics in France were furious about it, but like that, that sort of age of reason was a, a big part of one phase of the revolution and so, like, the criticism of it was that they were behaving like vandals, right? They're, you're basically, like, you're acting like German barbarians by destroying everything. And, and yeah. that's where the word vandalism comes from. And so, like, just thinking about it in terms of, like, this is an expression of, like, we're really mad at the world around us and we're going to smash windows or throw up graffiti or whatever just because... Yeah. who cares <laughs> they don't care about us so why should we like i think that specifically is like a really cool way to try to capture like alienation and that anger part of it yeah i like that idea and i mean it, i think too like because like thinking about the way that people talked about some of the black lives matter riots um because i remember in class like when all, when it all started happening and i had students who were really angry at, that the a cvs got burned down Right. And so we had to talk about how, like, you know, you don't know what the store meant to people in the community. You don't know about their hiring practices. You know, right. to you, it's just a. You don't know about the other stuff. Yeah, to, yeah. To you, it's just a drugstore on the other side uh -huh. of, well, halfway across the country. But to the people there, like, it, it clearly represents something different. And so maybe that, too. I don't know. I'm just. <laughs> thinking out loud and probably sounding really Actually, stupid yeah, right now. No. no, but I think that I think it would be interesting to look I definitely have other ideas I want to explore with this, so I think looking at kernel expression in certain ways could be another interesting thing to explore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, how do you do? You, are you able to teach about this? About these ideas at all? Yeah, so in gender crime and justice, it's pretty easy, right? Because, like I said, my, like, my main area of interest is really, like, partner violence and sexual assault, mm -hmm. um, particularly linked to, you know, early life experiences, particularly, like, family violence or some form of, like, negative parenting or family experience, right? Mm -hmm. So that I get to talk about a lot in gender crime and justice, and that's always interesting but i have to be careful with that because it can be it can be traumatic for so many students to sit and listen to those topics so i have to be really careful how i explore mm -hmm. those things and like i give content warnings and i am pretty lenient on those days i have assignments where they're supposed to be in class to turn them in on those days that we cover those things they don't have to be in class to turn them in so just trying to like think about my students in a compassionate way mm -hmm. um on those days and then as far as the, I really have tried to infuse this idea that crime is a reasonable response to some things, and crime makes a lot of sense if we step back and think about lives people are living that we don't understand, um, that might be child abuse, it might also be structural and interpersonal racial discrimination and just, you know, general societal racism. So trying to get my students to step back and think, like, if this is what my life looked like, could I understand why someone might turn to crime? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a really important um, skill. Yeah, 
And I think as far as like the racial discrimination, I try to, I, instead of focusing specifically on like racial discrimination in my classes, I try to really focus on the experience of black individuals in America. Um, in gender crime and justice, I really focus in on black women. Obviously we talk about black women throughout, no matter what the topic is, I try to bring up black women or LGBTQ women, but particularly focusing on like those two populations, just because I think in America it's so important. So like in gender crime and justice, we watch uh, Kimberly Crenshaw's TED talk on intersectionality, where she talks about how we all know the names of black men that have been killed by police, but we don't know the names of white women. And like, why is that? That video is great and very impactful. Mm-hmm. And so trying to, we also talk about like, how how do black women's experiences of partner violence, of reporting, of going to shelters, et cetera, differ because of discriminatory practices? For example, like shelters not having hair products for black women, right? So like on top of this fact that you're already out of shelter, they don't even have the hygiene products you need. Mm-hmm. So just getting them to think about that. Um, the other class I teach a lot is crim theory. So that is a little more difficult. I taught it at the undergrad and grad level. Um, one thing I tried to do at the grad level as far as that is make sure I had, so obviously they have to do foundational readings, but I also tried to really make sure we had readings by women and by people of color when at all possible. So they had to read like the classic, right? But like what other work out there is by a woman or by a person of color that can be a supplementary reading, right? Mm-hmm. So for example, we do... I do like subcultural theory, then race and crime. And on race and crime, they read Du Bois, Nikki Jones, and part of Rios is Punished. Mm-hmm. So just trying to incorporate those different voices into the material they're reading. Um, and in undergrad, I just try to bring up, in undergrad crim theory, I just try to bring up how race might be a factor. So, right, we talk about general strain theory. Like, what does it mean to think about being a black person and how racial discrimination is a form of strain, right? So like trying to bring up those ideas. And I've actually, I'm in Mississippi, so I have a lot of um, black and African-American students. So, right, like it's not, they, they don't understand everything, right? But like they already have like a basis for it. So it's nice to have a classroom where they can share their experiences and feel like I'm not ignoring their experience of the world while Mm -hmm. also reaching my students that are not students of color and trying to get them to think outside the box a little bit more. Yeah. So some things. (laughs) Yeah. Um, for sure. So I don't know, maybe it's a a regional thing. I, I don't know, I guess. Um, do your, do your white students have any, like, do they ever challenge this idea that discrimination is a, is a type of trauma? Because I can, I I know that if I, yeah. like when I teach that here, I'm in northeastern Pennsylvania. Um, I have students who would 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 be maybe not incredulous at the idea, but certainly would never have have ever thought about it before. Yeah, I don't, I don't get as much pushback, and I don't know if it's that people don't feel like they are in a space where there's thoughts on that would be welcome, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I make it very clear, like, I don't tolerate racial discrimination or racist, like, comments or sexist comments or anti-LGBTQ comments in my class. Like, I set that up at the beginning of the semester. Yeah. So I don't know if maybe they know, like, not to 
challenge me on that or feel like they can't challenge me on that, but I don't generally get that much pushback. I actually have found them to be very open to it Mm -hmm. and willing to kind of think about things in that way. I haven't gotten a ton of pushback. I can imagine that I could. Yeah. Um, But to now I haven't. Um, And another thing is like, right, like growing up in Mississippi, like a lot of these kids have gone to school that are very racially integrated as far as Mississippi goes. I've also lived in, in Georgia, right? Like there's still areas that are like highly segregated and not that that's not the case here, but I wonder sometimes in Mississippi if this is something all students have been grappling with for longer than say a student and, you know, like Nebraska where there's all like what, like 99% white people. Right. So I get less pushback on it. I at least get people to be open to it. Mm. If they are pushing back, they're not pushing back <laughs> actively <laughs> or verbally to me. In class. Yeah. Have you, have <laughs> you had any after class, but they're not bringing it up. Right. <laughs> For sure. Have you had any moments yeah. where they're like, like you see genuine surprise at this idea from them like like i said my students i think some of them probably wouldn't have considered it before um but i think would probably be open to the to the concept right like accepting this as a yeah like a scientific reality like do you have those like similar types of aha types of moments with your students yeah i'm trying to think of a specific example but i've definitely had moments related to having them think about for example, like how black women's experiences of partner violence are shaped by both their race and their gender. Um, and I get black men kind of sometimes, be, you know, having to think about the, the woman part and white students having to think about the being black part. And so I think it challenges students in on different things that they have to think about. Yeah, and I do, we do like reflections where they like write, you know, like a a page on like something to do with what we've learned that day. And I definitely do get students be like, you know, I hadn't thought about racial discrimination mm-hmm. as being, you know, like, like I said, like a major strain yeah. or we talk about, um, theory of African-American offending. Like I hadn't thought in my crim theory class, like I hadn't thought about how racial discrimination itself could potentially be, you know, a cause of crime. Mm-hmm. So I get more, I, I do see them have aha moments, but it tends to be more in their writing. Yeah. Right. Like those, yeah, those quiet types in, of reflective moments. Yeah. So I see them being reflective on it, mm-hmm. but not pushing back on it in class necessarily. It's definitely, it's definitely something some of them have thought deeply and often about and something that some of them are thinking about for the first time. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you something that um, I, I've asked, I was in a, like a role of asking everybody this question. Then I fell away um, for whatever reason, because I'm scatterbrained and <laughs> uh, <laughs> getting old and whatever else. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested in how people approach this idea of objectivity in their classes now, mm-hmm. because so like when I was going through grad school, not that long ago, um, everything about teaching was like you have to be objective. Um, the goal is to be a, a completely objective and leave your biases at the at the door. And like in my own experience, it's been like pretty clear that's that's impossible, right? And so 
sociologically, I wanted to start talking to people like, hey, like we we're all on the same page that being objective is impossible, <laughs> right? And right. I've I've had several people on here who have asked this question and who about objectivity who who almost like have like a belly laugh at the idea. Like we're like we're talking about curing you know, the coronavirus with leeches or something <laughs> like, of course, subject objectivity is, is silly. So I was just wondering, because you're, you're teaching subjects that are so, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like steeped in like core elements of social structure that I think people critical of sociology would be like, we're, we're just doing identity politics. Um, yeah. what's your, what's your take on being objective? Or like the idea of objectivity. I know this is like a super heavy philosophical question yeah, for what I know. promised would be a laid back conversation, but no, it's true. <laughs> I think objectivity is an illusion. Science is political and it's infused with value. Mm-hmm. And I think to pretend like it is not is a mistake. Mm-hmm. So, for example, science has been used to further racist and sexist ideals and cultural norms, right? Yes. In, ha- in the past, it has been. Uh-huh. So, I don't think there's anything wrong with recognizing that I now want to use social scientific knowledge to point out that, you know, for example, <laughs> patriarchy shapes women's experiences of victimization, mm-hmm. or racism shapes black people's experience of the criminal justice system, which further... influences racial discrimination which further influences crime right (laughs) so i feel i don't like it's weird for me to even use the word objectivity in that because i think i think that students and people sometimes get confused with the difference between a body of scientific knowledge and objectivity we can have a body of scientific knowledge and know that something is likely true Mm -hmm. What we do with that truth is not necessarily objective. Okay. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, I think that we can know that men's power and control in society is a risk factor for women's violence based on a large body of work. And then we can say that theorize that that's due to, you know, patriarchal norms. Mm -hmm. You could also use that same knowledge to say that women are victims because, you know, they're weak and they should be controlled by it, right? Like, we can use different ideas to explain the same truth or fact. Yeah. And for me, it's about, for me, it's about presenting truth through the paradigm that is being critical of society and critical of the criminal justice system. There's other ways to perceive scientific knowledge and present it. Yeah. Um, so I think about it as like, so I, I teach gender and crime. I, I wrote a book on gender and crime and I'm not trying to plug myself here. Um, I, I'm going to be teaching our, our big theory class pretty soon. And so what I do with my students is say like pretty much every theory <laughs> that we're going to cover as far as like the classic theories go, mm-hmm. it ignored the experiences of women and girls um, yeah. either just assumed that their experiences were identical to boys or just said like, who cares? Right. And so like, they'll, they'll kind of be a little, some of them will be kind of surprised by that. Um, 
and especially hearing like they just assumed that girls and boys were the same um kind right. of maybe laugh a little bit and so i'll say okay so like obviously they were extraordinarily extremely sexist in their um research design let's say that doesn't mean that we should throw it away that just means that we need to find like they said us uh maybe 30 percent of the puzzle <laughs> you know right. and we need to figure out everything else right um and i think that seems to be effective i i mean i hope <laughs> anyway yeah i like that approach like i i do that in theory a lot too like there's something here but we might need to you know ignore some of it and keep some of it right yeah like, yeah yeah um i think the one that i do that the most with is the code of the streets strangely now that i think about it um just because i mean again i'm not trying to be disrespectful maybe this is like a disciplinary thing right like a lot of our work sometimes or not sometimes almost all the time tends to ignore history and i think i think that specific theoretical perspective is a really good example of that right like people were killing each other over this idea of being disrespected for centuries you know and and that specific idea like the whole street code hypothesis acts like this idea of respect just just appeared out of the clear blue sky in the 1990s and that's just not at all the true you know so like yeah i see code of the street as trying to place that idea inside the racial reality of America and the fact that I, can, I totally see your point. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's I think what it adds is this understanding that so like I tell my students about like this when we do that theory right that there are literally black neighborhoods that are so poor that there are no white neighborhoods that poor. Yep. So what does that mean for your daily mm-hmm. life? And I totally get what you're saying, though, like, maybe recognize where that idea is coming, but it's definitely adding this idea that it's linked to that. Oh, yeah. and Yeah. Right, and that's that's the, I guess that's the baby in the bathwater, right? Like, very clearly, this idea speaks to, like, very recent crime policy. You know, the war on crime yeah. and the war on poverty and, and, like, and the war on drugs, too, obviously. Like, everything from Kennedy on... Um, and all like failure on top of failure on top of failure from the federal government and how this affects the lives of real people. And like, I like to tell my classes that you can either do politics or you can do justice. And you, if you try to do both, you're just going to end up doing politics. Right. And, (laughs) (laughs) and, and the policies are a good example of that because they were all political compromises that were, um, based on like. You know, stacks of faulty assumptions, I guess, about people, and, and weren't really interested in helping, a, like, create an equitable and just society. And I, I think that's the that's the real value in, in the street code hypothesis is just like this is what's left after several decades of discrimination and discriminatory yeah. um, policies yeah. and yeah. Cool. Uh, what else do you have going on? What else can we talk about? <laughs> I. Recently had a paper published in Journal of Interpersonal Violence looking at um, how risk for hooking up 
risk for sexual assault related hooking up differs based on things like whether or not you uh, identify as LGBTQ plus. So I think that is interesting and people might want to check that out. Um, I'm currently collecting data from college students. So I'm really excited about that, collecting data via Qualtrics. And what I'm excited with about that is that I'm asking them about both their experiences in high school and their recent experiences of partner violence and sexual assault. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to be able to, it, it's obviously, it's going to be cross-sectional. So the high school is retrospective report, right. but I think it'll be really cool to see this kind of legacy of perpetration and victimization and kind of, you know, stuff like that. I'm also um, asking questions about masculinity and um, influence of male friends in that. So I'm hoping to be able to do some cool stuff with men's masculinity and their violence against women. Um, Can I ask you how, like, what your questions about masculinity look like? Like, how are you operationalizing it? I can't remember. It's an established scale, which I cannot remember the name of right now. No worries. But it's questions like, it's a, you know, strongly disagree to strongly agree, like, men shouldn't show their emotions. Mm-hmm. Men should make the most, men should make more money than women. Uh, men should not, you know, hug their male friends. Mm-hmm. Um, a man should always be tough and strong. So like things like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Masculinity has become one of my favorite things to talk about in class. Um, because I, th- I think the the guys in class don't expect it from me. Um, because I'm, I'm very large and present as very masculine. Um, and then I have like stories about my life and, and stuff that tend to lean into that. And then just out of nowhere, hit them with all of this, um, all of this stuff about masculinity that is so interesting and so sad (laughs) too. It is sad, isn't it? We, so I'm actually talking about masculinity right now and gender crime, and justice and we talk about like negative parts of masculinity then they watch the mask you live in and then we talk about healthy masculinity and like the reaction some men have to the documentary the mask you live in is just heartbreaking yeah oh yeah i i just i mean you can the the weight of it on all men but like um the weight of masculinity on young men mm-hmm is just devastating sometimes and you can just tell as they're watching that that they really feel the weight of that on themselves yeah it's like uh it's like having a nerve exposed (laughs) like yeah and like especially within the the confines of masculinity like you never expect to walk into a classroom and and I mean, I think most guys would never expect to walk into a classroom and have something have like discussion that day be something that upsets them Unless it, like, touched on something, like, indirectly personal to them, right? But then Mm -hmm. the mask you live in and just talking about masculinity very broadly, like, something about it is just, like, like a direct hit, (laughs) you know? Like, all of that tough guy veneer just, you can't, they can't keep it up when this stuff comes up. It's also a day that people that don't talk all semester and never talk again have something to say mm-hmm. in, a, in a good way. In a right? good way. Yeah. I think you're right. It's like an exposed nerve. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen the movie or the documentary, um, girls on the wall? No. What is that about? Oh, it's so it's one of my favorites. So, 
Um, it's about a, a girls' juvenile facility, and they they hire like this outside um, like theater company, um, mm-hmm. and they come in and they help the girls write a musical about their lives, and so the girls get to um, they develop the characters. The characters are all based on on them. Um, but like combinations of their different personalities, right? So it's not like one girl as an as a character or anything. And then they write all the songs, and then they have to perform it um, in front of their family <laughs> at the end of the movie. And it's wow. so intense um, because, like, I mean, this is a. I mean, the some of the girls are in there for. I know there's at least one who's in there for murder. Um, yeah. and they've got all, and, and the ones who the, the movie features, like their lives are, are focused on. And so we, we find out all kinds of stuff about, about them and the act of having to write the musical forces them to kind of reckon with why they're in juvie. Yeah. Um, and so at the end of it, um, I will do this activity in class with, uh, like an anonymous text in kind of a thing. I use poll everywhere. Um, and say like, okay, so this is a movie about anger and like being like needing to let go of anger. Um, if any of you need to let go of anything that you're angry about, this is your opportunity to do so publicly, but also anonymously. And so like, it just sits up on there in the screen waiting for people to text in stuff. And like, they're all going on their phones really, (laughs) really wildly. And the stuff that comes up is so heavy. Um, and I really want to try to replicate that with the mask you live in. I actually know someone that did something that sounds amazing, first of all, and I'm totally stealing that. Um, <laughs> and I have heard, so I actually talked to someone that did. So, you know, in the mask you live in, they do the, it, one of the, in school thing, they do the mask activity mm-hmm. in the documentary, right? Where they write like what face they have on and what they're hiding underneath the mask. Yep. You could do something very similar with that in an anonymous way. And I know someone that said they did it mm-hmm. um, that I met a while ago um, that they were using that with their class. And they did, like, the mask. They said they mm-hmm. did, like, the front mask and the back mask. And I think that you could maybe combine that and do something and maybe still keep it anonymous. Mm-hmm. And then it's actually like something they did in the documentary, so it feels connected. I'm sure you could connect it a little bit more, but yeah, I just, I mean, I, I yeah, I mean, as I've kind of changed as a teacher, I, I start thinking more about like the purpose of the work is to help them become better people, and less about like I don't really care about grades so much anymore. Right. You know, as long as your GPA yeah. is where where you need it to be to pass, then like graduate, um, I'm not going to harp on you know, straight A's or anything. If you're a good person, like I, so I guess I'd rather have a student who is, who I know is genuinely like an empathetic person with a C average than a four O student who is also borderline, like sociopathic, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Definitely. And I think exercises like, like that are a good way of trying to like get across what we're trying to get across in classes. Yeah, that's why. That's one reason why I started doing like the reflection thing. So like, it's a way to, for them to just kind of like. It's not. I call it a reflection, but it's really that they watch like a video or a pod, listen to a podcast or something, and then they write on it. And I try to do that as a way for them to basically get an easy grade for just critically thinking about something 
and trying to make it somewhat personal mm-hmm. or meaningful to themselves. Um, what podcasts? Just, what podcast do you use? Um, the one podcast I can't remember the name of it. It is um, it's on NPR. I use a lot of TED Talks too. So like J- uh, Justin Baldoni has a TED Talk on healthy masculinity. Um, I use a, uh, I use two TED Talks for sex work, one in class and one outside of class. One is by Tilly Lawless, and it's just her kind of talking about how sex work is work. Mm-hmm. And the other one, the other one is about is a sex worker talking about the laws that sex workers really want mm-hmm. and um, basically supporting decriminalization of sex work. Oh, it's the it's a caught the caught podcast. Caught. Yeah, and you can get it on NPR. Um, okay. So the one that I have them listen to is called I Want Someone to Love Me Even for a Second. And it kind of deals, it's this young woman, Desiree, talking about her life and her experience of the juvenile justice system and kind of what got her there. Um, and I just have them think about whether or not how we're treating juvenile offenders and particularly female juvenile offenders, is that really what they need and what, what do they actually need? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I believe caught is all juvenile, hmm. um, offenders, all juvenile justice focused. Yeah. I need to expand my, my, uh, catalog of stuff. Cool. Thank you. For um, that. another, yeah, another podcast that you might know about this one, um, that I don't use in class, but that I've really enjoyed just personally is Ear Hustle. Yep. Have you listened to Ear Hustle? I know, yeah, I know so, of it. Yeah. Which is they're they are interviewing people about being in San Quentin mm-hmm. prison. Yeah, that was really good. So yeah, thank you too for that. Um, so last <laughs> the last question I have for you, and it's um, again, this is just I think more for my own personal kind of like sharing war stories type of thing. Um, so very clearly one thing that we have to do a lot in our jobs is, um, myth debunking. Yes. (laughs) Uh, what kinds of stuff do your students come into your gender and crime classes with? Like what, like if you're, if it's the semester starting today and you're like going through however you psych yourself up for a new year, (laughs) what, what are the questions you're like, okay, I don't want to deal with this again, <laughs> but I know it's coming. Um, a lo- the biggest, like, if it was, like, one thing is probably that if both people are drunk, it's not sexual assault. <laughs> yeah. So, and, like, I know that's very specific, but that, and, and that, so two other ones that I would say are common, that women lie about being sexually assaulted often mm-hmm. and the other one is that men and women's experiences of partner violence are always pretty much the same <laughs> yeah which i think goes back to this idea of objectivity yeah. right like they think that well number one like there's all kinds of mythology around alcohol right right which as a sober person i love those discussions <laughs> and, oh, yeah. and tearing them down um right and then number two they think that like so, so I go with the alcohol thing, right? All the chemicals must affect everybody the same way, and violence is somehow this scientific reality where just like one plus one equals two, 
then everybody must experience violence the same way. And it's, <laughs> it's so almost, it's so just, I don't want to say sweet, but just like you poor well, thing, <laughs> you know, yeah, you've, it, you've been it, lied to, to me, so much. Yeah. So they're probably shouldn't try. A lot of them yeah. probably are drinking again, but so this idea that like that totally makes that like that alcohol is an excuse for any kind of assault, right? But in particular sexual assault, but like are you all going out and like robbing each other on the weekends while you're drinking? <laughs> like you're not, right? So yeah. like there's something else there. Yep. I actually have them one of their reflections is on that. I think it's an article from Wired talking about how like um like Right, like sexual assault might lower inhibitions, but you already have to have the idea in your head kind of that that's a behavior that's okay uh-huh. to do. Yeah. Yeah, yep. so that's probably... And we actually, we do an activity actually where I like read scenarios and they have to tell me when consent has been violated. And there's one where two people are drinking and the girl is clearly more drunk and at the end has clearly like passed out and is being taken advantage of. But I'll still get people say that consent has not been violated at that point. So, I mean, that is terrifying, but also something that I'd try really hard in that class to break down, like, why that is not Yeah. okay. Yeah. So what about their, their myths about men and women experiencing partner violence the same way? How do they come at that? So I try to undo that, or they tend to think that, like, it's like... I get students that almost don't want to hear about women's partner violence because they're like, but men are abused too. Yeah. What about men? So like, they get like very focused on men. And I actually think that's a very important topic. Men being abused as children and by their partners is such an important topic. Mm-hmm. We need to be doing a better job understanding that. For sure. But at the same time... I always find it kind of fascinating that that's directly where their minds go. So instead of trying to understand why women might experience partner violence for reasons related to sexism and patriarchal norms, they kind of immediately go to, but what about men? So kind of trying to, so how I deal with that is I tell them there are two types of partner violence, the type that both men and women experience that tends to be more mild and not linked to the patriarchy and the kind of violence that pretty much only women experience, men rarely, but mostly women, that is what I tell them is like lifetime movie partner violence, right? So they like that. So yeah, it's easy to, like, you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say that, right? So it's so, oh, <laughs> we're not going to get sponsored by lifetime, but you're no. like, it's, it's <laughs> like the soap opera E like, I came home from work early and uh, I'm just mad. I'm not making light of it, but it's just to get them to understand no. what I'm talking no, about. No, it, like, it totally makes sense. Like it's, it, it puts such like a saccharine <laughs> like right. coating on it, but it like you, I, I totally understand why, <laughs> why you would do that. Yeah. So then we talk about that type of violence and how like, I haven't used this in this class, but I'm going to. I used it in a different class. The movie Private Violence. It's a documentary that was on HBO. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it follows a woman who runs a domestic violence shelter who was in one of these very, like, controlling, highly violent, you know, like, 
not letting you have the car keys, not letting you have access to money, Mm -hmm. constantly belittling and isolating you, like that really intense, you know, what we would call like coercive controlling violence. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of the things she, the woman in that documentary talks about is that her husband one time like was abused her because she was making him like food and she didn't like wash it the right way. And so like, how is that linked to ideas of like women as homemakers and men as dominant? And like, how is this linked? How are like those abuse in that context? Like how is that linked to sexism and patriarchal norms? So mm-hmm. getting them to think about those different forms of violence. Mm-hmm. Cause I think there are types of partner violence that aren't linked to patriarchal norms that are linked to more like interpersonal skill and lack therefore of, but then there are definitely forms of violence that are linked to the patriarchy and getting them to understand those two types. Yeah. And that, yes, they are important, but we're talking about, you know, we're talking about women right now, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's fun. Well, not fun. That's not the right word, but I, I, I don't know. I don't know about you, but, like, this job has given me, like, a darker sense of, of humor, I guess. So, I guess fun in yeah. a weird way to, like, okay, okay, we'll talk about men. Let's talk about men. And then, number one, you can hit, like, the masculinity thing, right? And talk about yeah. all the ways that, like, if you really want to focus your your time in class on how terrible things are for guys, too, then that's, let's really talk about, like, how awful masculinity is. But I can remember yeah. the first time I, like, the first time in class where a guy... I was in grad school. This is like my maybe my first or second semester ever teaching where we were talking about rape and sexual assault. And I said something like, but whatever the rate was for men, I don't remember what figure I would have given, but this, the student, he was like flabbergasted and he raised his hand and he's like, what are you talking about? Men can't be raped. It's like, uh, like yeah. you, but you can be. And he was, like, adamant about it. And there was a woman in class who, like, she Googled biologically for him. And she, like, hand goes up. And I I called on her. And she's just holding her phone and just gives, like, a very quick, like, bio 101 (laughs) overview. And this kid was sitting there just dumbstruck at this is how your body works. It really was, like... You you never got that in health class or, or or whatever, and was just, and so it makes me wonder like, why isn't this happening? Like, why aren't boys, why aren't boys learning this? What is it about right. masculinity that is creating this shield around us that like this these types of violence can't happen when they very clearly do? Right, like teaching men that they can't experience sexual assault yeah i think i i personally think part of that is that even when men are so men can be sexually assaulted by women but many men are also sexually assaulted by other men yeah and i think that at the layer when we're talking about masculinity of this like fear of this like homophobia right that is a part of masculinity like it's not going to be talked about and if it happens you're not definitely not going to share that right so and then if you are assaulted by a woman, then it's like a we- it's like weakness from, the, you know, a masculinity, like, if you're really trying to adhere to, like, hegemonic masculinity, right? Like that. Yeah. 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 I don't know. That's really complicated mm-hmm. and really sad. Oh, yeah. I, mean, um, there, I think there are very few 
ways to talk about masculinity that that doesn't end up being like these poor guys who are yeah. denying themselves like so much of the human experience and are just right. they have blinders on to everybody else's suffering because of their own desire to be invincible right it's like the extreme version of ignorance is bliss <laughs> yeah i told my class about that too i'm like we tell like the sense of like the role that entitlement plays with that too right like we tell men they should have everything just because Mm-hmm. And then life doesn't work out that way, and that's so precarious. Then, like, then what are you left with? Mm-hmm. Like, very little, right? Like, you're left with very little, especially when you've been told not to express emotions, not to prioritize relationships. You know, it just goes on and on. Yeah, yeah. This semester, I I put a thing on my syllabus, on my all my syllabi, saying that I don't expect people to work on the weekends or on break. Um, And I was like, I said, you know, for the last eight years at this school, I, I was a workaholic, um, especially when I quit drinking, like work very much filled that void. Um, And like on the first day of class, I would talk about how like this was starting to kill me (laughs) and I'm missing time with my daughters and I'm missing time with my friends and like all this artistic stuff that I want to do. And that's more important to me than school right now. And just like seeing the reaction of like, you're not supposed to say like a guy's not supposed to say that stuff out loud. Like I, I wonder sometimes how the boys in my classes view like parenting stories that I have, you know what I mean? But it's just like, you have to do it. Like I feel I have to have these conversations with them because I don't trust any other guy in their life to have these talks, you know, which is pretty shitty that I have to be the one to do yeah. this for all of these boys. Yeah, right. I feel like that a little bit with, like, the, like, uh, demystifying the, like, myths about, like, rape. Like, early no one has ever talked to you about this, but no one has. Yeah. Like, really no. Or, I mean, some of them have it. Like, a lot of them have it, especially when you start getting into, like, the more nuanced aspects of it. Like, oh, we actually talk about how, like, men can be raped, right? Like, that that's a rape myth that yep. a man can't be raped, right? So, or that women are lying, or et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing I do in masculinity that has actually always makes me really happy and is very uplifting, I have them pick. I actually got this from like a meme or something that I saw. So I have them pick someone that represents healthy masculinity and describe three ways they represent healthy masculinity. Uh huh. So a lot of people will pick, you know, like the rock or like, I can't even like, but a lot of them also pick like my uncle, my brother, my dad, my boyfriend. So those are always really sweet and very uplifting, especially when you get off of the talking about masculinity, like, so the rock is like the, the polar opposite of, of that like the worst like you the only person i would like that comes to mind that would be a worse example than the rock would be like ted bundy <laughs> like the rock is the about the rock is he's actually very sweet in real life about like his daughter yeah why people are like they know of him like outside of his like work right but yes, I agree. <laughs> At the surface, that one's very funny. Obama, also very popular. Oh, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I don't know. I I have been watching pro wrestling since I was maybe, like, in the third grade. 
And yeah. so I am familiar with The Rock's entire career. And The Rock's, like, yeah, The Rock got popular true. because he was this, like, frat boy, <laughs> like, extreme frat boy on TV that, I mean, when they, when they talk about The Rock, make sure that you tell them that he had plastic surgery when he was <laughs> maybe, like, 25. The Rock had breast reduction surgery in his early 20s. Oh, I, my God. Yeah. Okay. I'll have to tell that. See, I didn't know all this history of The Rock, yep. so now I'll have something. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. The Rock is half Samoan, and yeah. that body type was not conducive to the image that he was trying to portray on TV. So he had he had breast reduction surgery and wrestled in a t-shirt for like, or like a jer- like a cutoff oh. jersey for like two months while it, while it healed up. Totally contrary to this idea right. of healthy masculinity. <laughs> you, yeah. Oh, I. That's one. Like, because he comes up in my class too as like positive body image and like. Yeah. I have yeah. to tell them, you know, he. He's very vocal about this. Like, he only sleeps four hours a day. He's up at three in the morning working out, but he's also like I think the highest paid actor right now and is yeah, access to all yeah. this HGH. So if The Rock is listening to this, um I apologize. <laughs> we're just we're just joking with The Rock. Um please sponsor the show. And it's probably a good place to end. <laughs> right there. Um so thank you so much for coming on, Tara. Yeah, thank you. Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So I hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. So if you are untenured, and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come online, come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenure Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.